0: Welcome to Rings Reforged, a podcast that exists because the two of us are so obsessed with the rings of power, we simply can't stop talking about it. Paulina, it feels like yesterday that we were talking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're we're on a schedule now, so so it's actually good that we we are recording uh, quite close to. For, for those of you listening, this is
0: like the opposite extreme of when we were when we were recording Adar where we'd taken weeks between episodes this time is all a very quick turnaround uh, so we I don't think there's been any any news or anything to discuss anything's come out I, it's literally been a few days the Adar episode went out yesterday and we've had some nice messages again from from people that were excited to see us back which is nice because Otherwise, we might have felt a little bit like we we're just throwing this out there into the void. but people are actually listening, Paulina.
1: Yes, I know. And I appreciate it a lot. and I just I just love that we're actually getting some listeners and and people are excited to to hear our thoughts, even though we were a bit giggly sometimes, but <laughs> all right. shall we uh, shall we jump into it then? All
0: right, so episode four, The Great Wave, our opening uh, image, opening scene of this episode, uh, we kick off with everybody's queen, Muriel. Uh, obviously, the first time you're watching this, you don't know immediately that it is a dream, but that becomes uh, particularly clear when a giant wave crashes over Numenor and destroys it completely. Mm-hmm.
1: Nice start, hey? yeah yeah nice start and like on first words, like I was obviously like I wasn't aware that, that that uh that was actually a dream sequence but then I like thought back to the time that I read about Númenor and mm-hmm. I was like surely not yet
0: mild spoilers I suppose but I feel like I feel like we can uh we can let that one slide Yeah, I definitely felt like because there's that moment where, you know, she's she's introducing the baby to the world or whatever. And um, it's almost it feels like an earthquake at that point. The first time I'm watching, I'm thinking, oh, no, this is really happening. And it's something, you know, Galadriel arriving has triggered something, you know. But, yeah, as soon as you saw the water coming over the top, it was uh, it was quite clear that it was some sort of nightmare we obviously get the light we get the important detail with the petals coming in and that glorious shot from above Muriel's head uh, as she walks towards the opening like a stunning absolutely stunning shot
1: yeah and that that ties uh, ties nicely to the uh, sequence at the end of that episode but we'll get to that later yeah yeah
0: it was it was a really important tie
1: in something kind of after the actual dream like the i, I will just
0: say the visuals of the wave coming in and destroying Numenor, incredible, like horrifying. I actually have a deep fear of the ocean and big waves. So truly horrifying, but um, really looked incredible. A a, a detail that really stood out to me watching this time is when Muriel wakes up because the attendant, the servant that's with her is acting like it's, you know, first thing in the morning, let's, let's get up, let's get about our day. But Muriel isn't in her bed. She's asleep in the chair. And it, it really stood out to me like this little detail. She, she was asleep sitting up, right? And the bed is behind her. And it it's just this tiny little character building detail that I really appreciate because it kind of implies she went to, she didn't go to bed. She forgot to, she just fell asleep in her chair, probably because she was working, she was worrying, she's restless, she's not sleeping well. You We don't ever see that referenced again. But I really really like it it's kind of that that environmental storytelling element that I really appreciate in anything I ever watch uh really brings across an element of her character if you're paying attention
1: I, I think I only noticed that on on our uh, on my recent rewatch which was yesterday like I I I remember that I saw that she was kind of sitting up when when she wakes up so so I was at first, like my first thought was that maybe she was in a meeting, and she she just kind of dozed off because I don't know, tired and didn't sleep well worrying, like you said. But yeah, it was a very, very good character building.
0: So we then uh, head outside to the I'm going to, just gonna call it the forum, you know, like the Roman Forum, the area where people make their speeches. And Tamar, he of getting beaten up by Halbrand fame is complaining about the elf's mate. Let's just uh, highlight that language, the elf's mate, everybody. On one hand, horrible language, it's very othering, it's, it's kind of implying something almost like animalistic. On the other hand, once again, um, these people in Numenor pairing Halbrand and Galadriel up in a way that is romance coded, um, but I won't, I won't linger on that. So we have a few different things going on in this scene. We, we meet Kemen, farazon's son, we obviously see Tamar just being very anti elven immigrant in a in a scene that's quite almost almost a bit uncomfortable to watch these days because I feel like there was a time in life where we would have watched a scene like that and been like ah I'm so glad my society isn't that way <laughs> <laughs> and nowadays it's like oh right yes, yeah that's yeah familiar. so that's a bit depressing we also get a bit of time here with Arian. So, should we should we tackle Kemen as our kind of central connective character mm-hmm. because he's connected to Farazon and Arian here. I I don't first first watch opinions. I'm like who is this bland boy? I don't care whatever and he doesn't really get much this season. So, I'm trying to to rewatch with a with a different kind of approach and an attitude definitely getting the sense um, just from this very opening scene where he's with
1: Farazon as they're
0: kind of approaching Tamar. He struggles to please his father,
1: right? On first watch, I had the same impression <laughs> that he was very bland and like, who, who is he even? And like, even in later episodes, we don't get much of him. So I, I think it's going to be explored in season two. So that was just an introduction of sorts. But yeah he uh, I I on on Rewatch I definitely get this impression that he struggles to please Farazan his father but he also wants to be independent and he is kind of like stuck in the middle I think so so him like we get uh, get to see two sides of him this unsure boy uh, when he uh, when he's uh, when he's confronted with person and in his big city politics and and this also this side that he shows to Ariel uh, when when they just speak and he's playful and he's kind of flirty with her. I was suspecting at some point that maybe he has like an ulterior motive speaking to her, but I I I don't think it's that deep. Like I I think just like he really fancies her and and that's that's all there is to it
0: I, I have to say and this is kind of getting i think we'll talk about it more in episode five i definitely think i went into kemen with like as a character with set up expectations aka thinking that he's very loyal to his father and i actually don't think that's the case when i kind of look back um like i'm i'm, I'm intrigued. To, to more than I thought I would be like I was I was more into and this goes over to Arian in, in, as well I kind of forgot that she had so much in this episode and uh, yeah I was I, I'm intrigued by her too in a way that I kind of forgot that I was I think because they fall away in the second half of the season I'll come to Arian in, Arian in a moment why is her name so difficult to say I think I don't know
1: but I just had to r- write it down <laughs> like in bold letters for me to remember because it just Something, something about this name just like doesn't allow it to like sink in. I don't know.
0: I think the the main uh, point of this scene is really to show us that Farazon has the hearts of the people, right? Um, he comes in, Tamar is, is really stirring up all of this um, othering kind of language, this anti-elf rhetoric. And Farazon kind of, he doesn't actually put that down, in a way that somebody like Muriel would have done, for example, he just he just kind of sweeps it aside, distracts everybody. And then he comes out with the with the quote about Numenor. He really leans into that patriotism. She will remain as always a kingdom of men. And yeah, I think I think the scene is really to to highlight to us in in the previous episode, Farazon was very much the advisor on the side. In this episode, we, we get that first proper sense that he has power. Yeah, he,
1: he does have power and he also, also has a sway with the crowd and the general public. So then
0: Arian, we, op- we see Kemen chat Arian up a little bit before she gets pulled away. She looks back at him. She's clearly kind of into it. The thing that really stood out to me with Arian in this scene is what is the purpose of her observing all of this? And maybe we can't answer that question until we watch the next episode. But just to give you a teaser of where my mind is going with kind of with, with what we see and remembering, you know, from, from that first watch, remembering how against the war she is. Do you think this season is setting up Arian being impressed by pharazon and loyal to pharazon
1: Not sure. Actually, it's a very good question. I didn't think of it, but she is observing for a reason which is like beyond what what we are told about her like we uh, like she she just got accepted into a builders' Guild and like this is like far outside her like area of expertise. So why would she even like bother?
0: she she does say to Kemen that it's impressive. she is impressed by what she's seeing from Farazon and I guess I'm watching this this time and really, really absorbing that perhaps she has been quite sheltered. She's the youngest. She hasn't been part of a guild. Um, You know, maybe she's been kept close to home. Maybe she hasn't been out and, and been that independent on her own. She's getting chatted up by an older boy for the first time. And she's seeing Farazon up close, perhaps in a way that she never has done before. And I don't know, I guess, yeah, again, thinking about the future, thinking about how she ends the season, And then looking again at her relationship with Kemen, I I almost wonder if they're going to subvert our expectations a little bit in in season two or season three whenever we get it. And she's going to be the one that is team Farazon because she's going to resent the elves for taking away her brother, who she's going to assume is dead. And then we get Kemen, who you would think would be loyal to his father, perhaps not being so. I don't know, it's all speculation, but you know me, I like to get my ideas out there so that if I'm right, I can say I told you so, and if I'm wrong, I can pretend I never said it. (laughs) Well, now you cannot, because... (laughs) I will delete this episode from...
1: (laughs) From existence, yeah. But I mean, I like it. I like it. Like, I, I would be into it if they decide to subvert yeah, I, I'm
0: less sure about the Kemin side of things. I think he's a bit more of an anomaly, but I, I feel, I do feel quite confident that Arian is going to go down a darker path.
1: Uh, and we still have like this, uh, this idea that maybe one, one of the ring mm-hmm. will be actually female. <laughs> so...
0: Yeah, I honestly, Team Arian <laughs> ring wraith. I'm sorry, Ellen Deal. I'm sorry, Isildur. I know that's awful for you, but please.
1: It's not a great end game for 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 most of them, so like we may as well get something out of it. All right, so we
0: then we then go back inside and we have Muriel, Ellen, Deal, and Galadriel kind of looking at the the sigil, basically the evidence that Galadriel and Ellen Deal found um, in the Hall of Law. Muriel is vexed by their little trip that they took, but she's not at this point. You're already kind of getting that sense from her that she's more on Galadriel's side than she wanted to let on in the previous episode, because if she was really that pissed off, she would have done something about it. She'd be punishing Deal in some way, but she's kind of more just like, oh, for God's sake. One little line that I'm sure you must have picked up on when Muriel points out Halbrand getting into some trouble and Galadriel excuses oh, yeah. him with, he is understandably quick to temper. <laughs> People are dying. <laughs> I think if she'd actually seen how he'd beaten those people up she might be a bit more reticent on that part she just thinks he's been yeah but hall.
1: but it's cute that she see uh that she thinks that uh, him him just you know being quick to temper and and like pe- be- beating people up is is because he he is just so grief stricken that he cannot b- go back to the southlands oh my god <laughs> But
0: this does this does tie into what I said last episode, and I, I feel it even more strongly though that she doesn't really and and actually there's a line she says later on, so I'll, I'll call back to it then. She doesn't really care as long as his identity helps her get back. Like if he's even if he's a bit of a thug, that doesn't compare to Sauron being back in the Southlands you know, and doing proper evil. There's like being a bit naughty and then there's proper evil. And she thinks sweet Halbrand is just a bit naughty. In fact, he is the embodiment of evil, but and she won't find that out for a while. She reveals to Muriel that Halbrand is king of the Southlands, doesn't quite have the impact that she'd hoped for. And then there's a little uh, line. Now, this is something I did not like
1: first um, go around and I love this Is it, it this the time. king of Orc Cam- uh, Carpenter line?
0: Yeah. And then when Ellen Deal replies, just a petty lord, actually, like the joke between them. So the reason I didn't like it first time around, I'm about to offend a ton of people. I don't like what has kind of invaded. I think it's dying away a bit now, but there were like years where the kind of I'll call it Marvel humor kind of infected everything not just my. like it started happening in star wars and you'd see it a lot where what would happen a lot in the marvel films is there'd be a really serious moment and then it gets undercut by humor right and it would just it would happen too much it works sometimes but it would happen too much
1: you you will find an ally in me about uh with this mm. because that's actually my main problem with marvel movies and the, the, the whole franchise
0: so we've just we've just alienated our entire uh, fan Sorry. base of Marvel fans. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> but in, in relation to this particular moment, the first time I watched it, I was I just got a bit nervous. I think because it's one of those kinds of moments, and I was really worried it would happen a lot more. But it doesn't happen. And so watching it again, I'm more relaxed, and I'm I find it cute. I find it cute that Ellen deal like I'm putting myself. It's almost like he's trying. He knows Miriam was going to be a bit pissed with him, so he's almost trying to like win win back her favor a little bit. And then the look, the look she shoots him is so <laughs> yeah good. Oh, I love it.
1: It was just, just if you do it in moderation, the way that they did it, it just works, and it's ac- it actually provides uh, like a really fun moment. So so I'm all for that yeah. when when it's done well.
0: There's another similar little moment here. And let me know if I'm skipping over a note that you have. But um, when Muriel is basically pushing back to Galadriel and uh, I I haven't written down what she says. She says something, I guess, about all of Numenor feeling a certain way. And Galadriel responds with not all Numenor. Mm -hmm. And then you get this little shot of Elendil's face, like looking at Galadriel. Don't out
1: me, don't
0: out me. Don't put me in shit, yeah. So ultimately, Muriel, you know, rejects Galadriel's proposition to join forces, to to unite Numenor with the elves. And Galadriel, sweet, lovely Galadriel, does
1: not take it well. Yeah, she does not respond to authority well, (laughs) just like someone else that we know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but there is also the that quote uh, that uh, like it's not really that important, but but really the first time that I watched it, it made me laugh a bit. I have to admit, uh, there is a tempest in me. It swept me to this island for a reason. Like the way that he, she delivers it is kind of like she's so into it. Like she's so angry and and like give me an army already you know and and she's just so at impatient to to get what she wants and yeah like I I I really am feeling sorry for her in that scene because she is really at wit's end absolutely but also like yeah deep breaths Galadriel like like calm down a bit like stop galloping you you get the impression that she is very
0: used to getting saying i want this yeah, because and getting she, what she wants because want.
1: she's the commander so like and she's also used to issuing commands rather than asking uh,
0: asking for requests yeah so i also wrote down there is a tempest in me quote it's funny that you when you described it as being funny a lot of people this is another one of those lines that people mock and i don't really get it i like it i i think it's fine
1: i love i love the delivery It is very dramatic Also we have Elendil kind of like eyeing the whole situation which is a bit like funny and like also Muriel kind of being very stop already you know.
0: (laughs) It's nice to see from Elendil it's like another little reminder he's very much on Galadriel's side and I think you get the impression that he wants to help but he does step in here doesn't he and say that's enough right come on look I am that's my queen and I'm loyal to Numenor first and foremost. The bit I found funny of this sentence and I... There are a couple of these in this episode. I'm calling them the laugh out loud transitions, which is when, and again, the delivery is so good. I w- it will not be quelled by you, Regent. She says it with such disgust. And then we cut scene. She's being locked in a cell. It absolutely will be quelled. I, by the I
1: love that transition. That, is just, that was that was gold.
0: <laughs> and then, of course, we just get that lovely little moment of how Brand just grinning yeah. <laughs> at her and uh just
1: being utterly delighted and then he just has a little giggle Ah, oh. yeah like if you were to tell me that Sauron is funny <laughs> a few years ago I would I would be like no way
0: Sauron's just having a good time and he he genuinely look
1: look 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 this
0: isn't even shipping goggles
1: I appreciate
0: Sauron's evil purely evil in the end he's gonna go bad no matter what happens any attraction or emotion or connection he feels to Galadriel ultimately will be about power, will be about possession.
1: Especially when he's stripped bare to just that one eye that is kind of in the yes, tower.
0: absolutely. It will always be that way. That does not change the fact that he genuinely finds her delightful. And, and look, maybe a part of it, he maybe finds her amusing because she is just such a spiky bundle she's of like
1: a cat she like. is
0: like a cat i think we said that before but sauron does think she's delightful that's canon to me now our last little sequence in numenor is another kind of really significant chunk we see isildur back on his little boat we see the handsome sea master again i think we get a bit more information in this episode and let's just talk about this now because we we talked about this a lot last time it sort of hears that voice again, and I'm I'm jumping forwards a little bit, so we'll we'll come back to what exactly happens, but it's in the it's definitely the West, and it's the real Numenor. I'm doing quote marks, whatever that means. So that's what he's hearing. Now I, I just I feel like this is one of those things I just have to let it go. I I haven't read any more of the Fall of Numenor for a while because like the West to me is that the West of the island, is that another part of an island. Is that Valinor over in the West? It's, it's interesting. I really, and especially when you consider that Isildur is now going to be stuck in Middle Earth. So what was, what, what is up with going West?
1: I, I don't know. I really don't know. I actually didn't remember until it came up that one bit about the real Númenor. I just thought that he was looking at part of the island that is just kind of like, I don't know, like far from the city, maybe, maybe on the other side, but like, not sure what, like, why the West then? So
0: anyway, that that's just me kind of updating everybody. We have picked up on the fact that they're talking about the West of Numenor. So
1: also on the fact that Isildur is hearing voices.
0: <laughs> so Isildur hears the voice and decides this is my sign, I want off, dad's not gonna let me quit, I'm gonna get thrown off, he messes up on purpose, and sadly gets Vallandil and Ontimo kicked off the sea guard as well. So we then cut away from the sea, and we get, um, this is our first proper introduction, I would say, to Vallandil and Ontimo. And I think this scene between the three of them is reflective of their ultimate roles. Vallandil has a lot more prominence, Ontimo is a bit more a bit more in the background, Kind of immediately, even from this point, if I was going to pick, I'd be like, okay, Ontomo is dying. Valendil is more significant. But this is this is really good. Isildur obviously didn't mean to get his friends kicked off. But I think Valendil gets a really uh, good little speech where he's essentially calling out Isildur's privilege, which Isildur absolutely has. We can imagine that Valendil comes from a, a much more lowly kind of status. He's had to work his way up. Isildur has not. I think it's also a, a nice scene for us getting another sense of how, what's the word I'm looking for? Disconnected from reality, as Sildur is in a way, that he thought that he could do that and it wouldn't have consequences for anybody yeah. else. You know, he he didn't stop to think about how... He acted in the moment on impulse and has has caused yeah, these problems. Yeah,
1: I, I actually wrote the same note, that he is disconnected and like he doesn't think much further like what the consequences uh, of his actions could be and i think it's there's precedence to to that as well like uh, taking into consideration how his friends reacted so it's not the first time and they've already dealt with him being kind of like doing whatever he wants in that particular moment and feeling ungrounded i think in in what role he's supposed to feel it
0: gets quite personal doesn't it, calls him out and and actually valandil implies that Anarion is dead so you know that is something that obviously isn't true but you know people in numenor i guess are assuming that he's dead because they don't know where he is he haven't they haven't heard from him in so long isildur obviously has a very strong reaction to that it gets it gets a bit personal it gets a bit nasty valandil's whole world has just been taken away from him because of isildur's dream of the west
1: that, that was his whole plan for life. So 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 it is understandable that his reaction is, is is quite severe. But I also like the fact that Isildur doesn't really seem to be quick to anger. Like he's more resigned, like he screwed up and like he he uh, he apologizes for that like obviously like it doesn't have much weight in in light of how big of a screw up it was but like he only gets really angry uh when his mother gets mentioned and his brother like like when when it gets personal when it gets uh, very specific so like i really like that one bit a bit that that he's not really this angry like uh, teenager maybe not teenager but like young adult like stomping around and like throwing punches he's really like kind of moody and 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 kind of like not knowing where his place is
0: there's almost a light kind of and i say this as as an adult with a bit more of an understanding you know, on a personal level as to how depression can present in a human being. Like 10 years ago, I thought depression was a certain thing that was very dramatic and dark. Um, And I look at Isildur and because he's so aimless, because he doesn't know what he wants to do, because he does wonder about his brother and disappoints his father and isn't as focused as his friends, you know, there's there's almost a, obviously there's a sadness to him in this episode because he makes a mistake. But I don't know, there's a, there's a weight mm. to him that I think Maxime gets across. And I think that plays into him being disconnected. It plays into him almost almost being kind of numb. And like you say, his apology not carrying the right weight because there's something about him that's still distracted, yeah. even in this moment, like he's still in his own head.
1: He's still unsure and he like doesn't, doesn't know how to get his message across because he doesn't really know what his, his goal is
0: yeah and he, and he doesn't know how to convey what he's feeling but things improve when he has purpose uh and then and then his friend dies and then he gets buried under a building anyway let's fly across the sundering sea to the southlands now first off here we get to meet Adar properly So we kind of we kind of reverse a little bit and go back to the orcs chanting and we get to see Joseph's face for the first time. And the first introduction that we have to Adar is him putting a wounded and dying orc out of his misery with tears in his eyes. And I think this is a especially when you consider his whole journey and his whole thing for the season. Great introduction to him as a character because it's not what we expect.
1: I really did not expect to see, like, the orc lead- leader to be really this loved and revered by the orcs, but also for him to actually have, like, to-, to care for them. Because he it is genuine. Like, there is no, like, it is not a ploy. It is not something that he pretends. Like, he really is a father to them. So that was amazing. I was, like, kind of, like, you know... Kind of sat back and I was like, what? What? What did I just see? Like that was that was really amazing. And also Joseph's performance, like from the first scene that we see him actually acting, doing things, like it was it was really powerful that that he managed to like he killed that orc to to put him out of his misery. But he also did so with tears in his eyes and also had that kind of aura of a leader all at the same time
0: he's captivating in this scene immediately captivating we get our first nampat from from the orcs which is very exciting i love a bit of nampat we also get something that i think is or it feels unique to me of this show compared to the films um, and it, it ties into what we talked about before about the show giving the orcs so much depth we really get a sense of camaraderie between the orcs, like they're a they're a group that care for each other. In how they come and carry this this dead orc away, and you you get the impression that Adar has created this community, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think uh, I I wrote it down as well that they come together. And they they seem to be uh, stricken by the fact that that one orc died. Uh, and in comparison to uh, to Lord of the Rings movies, like we have orcs constantly fighting against each other over the most petty things. So so it's it's like maybe like I wouldn't say that they are leaderless in in Lord of the Rings, but but there seems to be a depth to to Adar as the leader in in Rings of Power. And I really, really love that. Like, it's not something that I was anticipating. Just kind of like we were given this and that's amazing, really.
0: I definitely think I prefer it Mm. this way. However, one thing that kind of works nicely with it in terms of people, anybody wanting to kind of like, I'm somebody, I know some people hate the idea of connecting the show to the films, but whatever. I love connecting it all. And it can still work because this is the orcs under the leadership of Adar who cares for them and who encourages this. In that far, far future, many generations later, Adar is uh, no more, and they are being ruled over by, obviously, Sauron and whoever else at various points, who do not care.
1: They fear them, but and they are ruled over and not led. So uh, that
0: yeah. So the the culture changes basically.
1: Actually, that's a great comparison. I think it works. Like it makes sense.
0: And of course, while all of this is happening, Arondee is witnessing it, and Ishmael Ishmael performs this whole scene. Every every shot of him, you can see like horror, but also just like confusion. It's so everything that's happening is is so beyond what he
1: he's kind of like us like, in this what situation is like i wasn't
0: expecting this
1: i wanted to tie to to what happens next that that adar speaks quenya i think you you're supposed to pronounce it yeah so uh, he speaks quenya to, to arondir and arondir seems to be taken aback and it's like I, it felt to me on rewatch that maybe it was the first time that Adar got to speak the language that he grew up speaking in a long, long time, and it's for him it's kind of like you know remembering a past that he that he's no longer a part of, and like him being like disconnected from it, but also kind of in awe of what what used to be his life. It's a
0: real kind of light, dark dichotomy. Like I, I think that's a really great point because we know later on we see him with the seeds before the battle, and we he expresses that he he'll miss the sun, you know. He didn't choose to become what he is. I think we I think we have that confirmed to us later. And there are I, I think he's at a place of acceptance with who he is, but there are things that he misses. It was actually a beautiful scene, but we will get to, to that later. But I do also think, from Adar's perspective, I would imagine, because of how he has been shunned and abandoned by Elven kind, you know, I think he he has his eyes open to the flaws and the faults of elves in a way that somebody like Arondir simply simply doesn't. So yeah, this whole sequence they talk about Beleriand. I just said that really badly, which I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was lost in the First Age, and that's where that big battle essentially. Took place so that's that homeland of of arondir and that adar also remembers is is now gone yeah ishmael again fantastic he's he's repulsed he's curious arondir is you know essentially asking you know what what do you want like what essentially is going on here and and adar i didn't write the entire thing down but um i I wrote down you have been told many lies which i think implies everything we've just said uh but i am no god at least not yet great delivery, again, and just, it, it doesn't tell us what he's doing, but it gives us an idea. I mean, if he's planning on becoming a god, you can imagine he's planning on doing something pretty significant.
1: Great plans for, yeah, for the future and, like, kind of a rip-off of Sauron's plans for Southlands, for the Southlands, but but I guess like, he is actually like, uh, he has a way with the orcs now, so... Yeah, uh, he's he's the best contender at least for now.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, why why let all Sauron's hard work go to waste? You might as well take advantage of it. Throughout, Adar and uh, not Adar, sorry, Arondir has picked up a shard of something or a sharp stone. I'm not sure what it is, and you know is clearly planning on like last-ditch attempt to kill Adar like who cares what happens to him everybody's dead but he stops when Adar reveals that he's going to let him go would you classify this as a mistake from Adar's perspective letting Arondir go to warn the people in the tower or does it ultimately he still gets what he wants
1: I think the second I think he he does get what, what he wants wouldn't say it's a mistake I think he's kind of he he didn't expect to meet this uh, this resistance, and he didn't expect to to meet Arundhira. I think he's kind of prone by his presence, and I I think he lets him go not only to deliver the message to to the watchtower to to uh, to the people gathered there, uh, but also because he maybe out of like i don't know like misplaced maybe not misplaced uh, maybe out of something his old self that that was lost to the past
0: he's felt a, a, a minute amount of connection maybe you could even you know obviously all the other elves have, have died um so we can't care that much about elves dying but he's not killing them with his own hands perhaps Perhaps there's something about Arondir. They they certainly, in terms of the acting, they certainly, there's a lot of there's a kind of a spark of intensity between them. Really, a really great job.
1: Joseph, you were great. We will be you will be missed. Oh. You
0: were you were fantastic, Joseph. I know you're listening and uh, we yeah. appreciated you. <laughs> so we cut across to Osteriff, where the, the watchtower is. And there was a little detail in the in the initial dialogue here that I definitely missed the first time because we talked about this where I think Waldreg says to Bronwyn who who made you leader or something like that and she replies you did when we arrived so basically there's dialogue that confirms there was a there was a vote when they all got to the tower And everybody has elected Bronwyn the the leader, because I know we questioned that. We were like, not sure when she officially becomes the leader, but she does. So that was that here. We get some really, we'll talk about Waldreg I think, more later. But Waldreg is definitely the problem person um, at this point, pushing back, pushing back. And then sweet Theo. He uh, gets taller and taller with every episode.
1: There was there was that definitely a growth spurt <laughs> in between filming episode two and three. Actually, I think that that was the most significant one when the pandemic struck and and they had to stop filming. Yeah.
0: So uh, that actually makes me I there's a there's a shot in this episode. It's later on where Theo's clothes are so goddamn long on him. Like it looks like he's wearing rags. And I thought to myself, is that Are they trying to make him look less tall? I wondered if that was like, they were trying to do a bit of a trick of something. I think he's
1: also like not standing upright.
0: Yeah. He's walking like all hunched. I I think that must've been it. Yeah. So we get another uh, laugh out loud transition here because Theo is suggesting, look, we need to go back to the village. We need to go and get the food. They're running out of food. We need to go back and get the grain from from the village. And Bronwyn is obviously not keen on Theo doing that. And she says to him, you can either help me or you can make it harder. And then we transition to Theo making yeah. it harder. <laughs> yeah. Theo and Rowan, the best friend that you could ever have, um, have snuck out of the tower. They are heading. They, they go back to the village. We see the village has been absolutely wrecked. All of the cattle and, and sheep have all been killed. And uh, there was there was one little detail that was weird to me here because they've obviously gathered quite a lot of stuff, but then Rowan won't go into the tavern. Why not the tavern? Why why are they so scared I of have the tavern? No idea. Nothing
1: happened I, in the I tavern. I have no right? idea. Maybe like like it would make sense if they just gathered supplies from like I don't know like from like a space that was out in the open, not inside. But yeah. we don't see that happen, so we just have them kind of like already ending their run for food and and like then Theo just suggests that they they should go inside and and check which is reasonable like uh, I would think that that would be one of the places that you would check and then Rowan kind of gets cold feet all, all of a sudden and he's like oh let's go back like we cannot go in there like I'm not sure why
0: yeah it's very it's a little bit of a strange a strange detail so Theo goes in on his own uh and then the clouds come over and it, we get a really cool shot of Rowan pretty much immediately abandoning Theo straight yeah, away
1: he, he, he doesn't really have much backbone but what I wrote down is that like Theo has his uh hilt that he took from Waldreck's uh barn I think that was uh, so, like, I think his like bravery that he exhibits here could be because of that hilt. Like, maybe it's giving him a, a false sense of security that, that he's he's able to do more that 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 he actually can do. Maybe maybe there's something about that because Rowan does doesn't have it, so he he's a coward, like we know that. But but maybe maybe he's just. You know um isn't deluded by 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 the presence of of that dark power that the that the has
0: yeah i I don't know, I think um it could be, but I think that i I know technically he had already stolen it, but Theo was just as brave in in the second episode as well, right,
1: yeah, he's hot blooded and like yeah, and wants to do it the hard way, <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, I think I I put this as a note later on, but this episode is kind of a tale of two halves for him and it, it embodies both early season Theo, annoying, a brat, we don't like him, but it also includes later Theo, I, I think until we, I, I feel like we look at the hill in that way because of the ring, right? The impact of, of dark magic. We think of it as maybe having an influence and maybe it does, but the show never really leans into that as being a huge temptation, um, apart from maybe in episode six a little bit, but I don't know. I, I, think, I think Theo is brave anyway. And I think that's maybe the difference here. My my personal reading would be that Theo would be just as brave
1: without it.
0: Even if he didn't have the hill.
1: I think it works too. Like he's 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 just a bit maybe brave too, but he's also a bit stupid.
0: Yeah. Reckless. Reckless for sure. Um so yeah, we get that great shot of the cloud cover coming over and taking away the light as Rowan runs away. And then Theo, basically, we have that that kind of horror shot where you can see the shadow behind him and it's an orc the orc in this scene is so good like this is where the perk of prosthetics comes to play because whoever is is in that costume is so expressive when because theo pulls out the hilt to defend himself and it's like the mouth goes wide the eyes go (laughs) wide it's kind of comic it's kind of funny but really, really good. And we get the first kind of reveal here that the orcs are looking for the hilt. Theo does not hesitate to stab that thing into his arm and to use it. And then he he runs out, jumps in the well to hide. And yeah, the orc comes running out. I found the hilt! We've got the hilt! Like all that sort of stuff. Um, I don't know why I just did that accent on uh, on a recording. <laughs> And yeah, uh, what else is there to say about this little little sequence? Oh, here's my note. Transitional ep for Theo, bad and
1: good. Theo in the well is so goddamn loud. Yeah, I was I was just about to comment on that, like the way that he he comes out of the water. Like that made a sound, like like it wasn't it wasn't subtle at all. Like <laughs> bursts out. All right, so
0: now we get a very, very brief uh, little scene in Eregion where we see the forge being built, um, which looks very impressive. And then we're upstairs with Celebrimbor and Elrond. I don't have a huge amount of notes on this scene, mostly just calling Celebrimbor out for being so shady. I was convinced in this scene that he was manipulating Elrond. that that Sauron was pulling the strings, like I've said before, that um he was already being corrupted. Um, I was convinced
1: because it's so shady. He's not really being subtle about it; like he's just sitting there and like being very, very shady. And I thought it was Gil that was pulling the string, not not Sauron. A really see through, like and bringing Elrond's that uh, that to the picture. Uh, actually yeah worked
0: i wrote it down in my original notes and didn't write it over but it was like particularly it was just so manipulative elrond honestly i think he should have been like all right fuck off
1: (laughs) but also he's just too nice to to say anything like that like even like he he's not quick to anger at all like he is the opposite, like he's really calm and collected. So the day we see him lose his shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, it will be it will be traumatizing. Talking about him being very nice. We get what what I have called polite combat between Elrond and Disa. Um, and it's a really I think it's a really well written scene. The, they're both smiling. They both love each other but they both know exactly what the other character is doing. Disa knows that Elrond is digging for information. Elrond knows that Disa is covering up information. Neither one is going to back down. And can I also just draw attention to Disa's outfit?
1: That leg slit she has going on? I loved it, and I also I also loved Elrond's outfit in in the scene. It's the same outfit I think that he's wearing in the scene with Caliburnbor, but still still amazing. Can I just say that uh, this has Deary at the end of her a bit of monologue was just so like alarming. I was like, "Hmm, what is happening here?" Like she has some darkness in her, and I was. I was kind of into it. Yeah, I I didn't. It's interesting
0: that you you mentioned that because I do have brackets, evil question mark after a note about Disa later, but not not here. I didn't find the... I get what you mean. The Deary was kind of passive aggressive, like, are you gonna stop questioning me now, please? Because you're getting on my nerves.
1: Well, there is a scene with Lisa, uh, I think in episode, I think it, it was seven mm. that I kind of got uh, flagged as one of the uh, one of the Lady Macbeth uh, scenes with her. I feel like we talked about it, didn't
0: we? I can't remember whether it was in the introduction or in because
1: yeah, we're we're talking we're talking about characters that that didn't quite make our uh, top five. Yeah, I, I like I loved the the whole back and forth between Elrond and Disa and they were they were both on fire in different ways. But Disa was alarming. I was worried.
0: <laughs> Wait, Disa then we then cut to we get kind of a lot of little short scenes here. Disa up, is updating Durin, they're co- crossing this bridge. I did also note here they are so in love with each other, but Elrond is eavesdropping. Yeah. He's just crouching down there. <laughs> Very obviously, I must say. And then we we get a kind of cut of Elrond, you know, following the trail, finding the footprints, doing the knock on the on the wall and, and making his way through. Before we tackle Elrond and Durin's scene. Your thoughts, did you have any thoughts on how much Elrond pursues this? He's being a bit of a nosy bugger in this in this scene, you know. Is is there any part because at this point, he hasn't been told that the elves are going to fade away. So he hasn't been given that kind of push of, you need to do this. You need to find out what's going on for, for the elves.
1: It's not quite as, uh, as, uh, yeah, as urgent for him to actually get to the bottom of this. I thought, and I, I think I stand with with this on rewatch as well, that he was annoyed uh because he was obviously being lied to so what is happening there i think was he was annoyed that even though they kind of you know have this truth now and all was forgiven that there is still something Mm. that remains hidden between them i think also a part of him that was just curious a curious politician that maybe there is something that can be used here like maybe there's something afoot that he wasn't aware of previously so he just wants to get his ducks in a row so to speak and just know what he is dealing with uh, here did you think that 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 he was kind of like pursuing this uh with uh with an urgency that wasn't like called for
0: it wasn't so much that it was an urgency. I definitely thought it was just curiosity. Like, I don't think he thought anything sinister was going on or anything. It just struck me that he just was not letting it go. But I think mm. what you said is is a good, you know, he's, he's not quick to anger. He's not quick to, um, he's not going to tell Durin off. But when we get to the scene with Durin, so I, I might as well just go to it. So Durin comes in, finds him. And straight away is like, I knew it, you were sent to spy on us. And I think this is this is about as exasperated as we see Elrond get. He's like, no, but you've been hiding shit from me.
1: Why don't you just tell me what's going on? I'm right here. So you just, yeah, yeah, I'm in your home and you're keeping secrets from me, even though I'm your friend. I think he was just had a right to be to to feel annoyed and exasperated that that he was like being kept in the dark. But
0: yeah, I I I feel like I don't know if I would say he had a like I think a part of me is like a part of me wants to say to Elrond, you know that Durin isn't the king, and if if King Durin has told Prince Durin that he can't tell you something, I think you understand duty enough to respect that boundary. I guess that's what I'm getting stuck on. Like he doesn't, does Elrond ever stop to think, okay, they're my friends and they love me and they trust me. So maybe there's a good reason they're not telling me whatever this thing is. And maybe I shouldn't go stick my nose in. It's not a problem for me in terms of Elrond. You know, I like my characters to not be perfectly, perfectly, perfectly noble. So I, I like that he couldn't resist essentially. But I don't know if I would say he necessarily had the right to um, without the without the pressing urgency of the the elves kind of thing. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get some when when Elrond's kind of just confusion and exasperation finally when Durin over Durin um basically makes him swear an oath. And I I wrote down a couple of great lines here. I need your oath hand to mountain. I like I just you know I love anything that implies that kind of culture. Hand to mountain is very unique to the dwarves. I love that. And then this line, Dwarven anger outlives elven memory. Hmm. I just think that's really lovely, really well written, um, really clever.
1: And very on brand for the dwarves <laughs> as well.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, you believe it. With full context, you believe it. Elrond swears the oath. And this is where we get the full reveal that it's the, the Mithril. And this is where I've put the evil com- like brackets around Disa's name, because Durin mentions that Disa is the one that initially found the Mithril right maybe disa is actually a spy sent by Sauron.
1: <laughs> which was a fury at some point uh, like in some circles i saw that like so- i saw that somewhere like
0: she's got really glowy eyes man really glowy eyes <laughs> just for the record if that ended up being the case, I would be heartbroken. I do not want Disa oh, to be a spy uh, for Sauron.
1: But there is some, there's something going on. <laughs> there is just something about her that that like I don't know, like there's just something about her that makes me think that like a larger game is afoot. <laughs> we know that uh, there is because we they are just mining for it uh, for Mithril without consent from the king so th- that is an offence.
0: yeah and I, I, maybe that will be all that it is is that Disa mm. has a flaw in her character in that mm. she's she's hungry for power and progress and that ultimately mm. leads them down a dark path you you've just transitioned transitioned us nicely to talking about obviously we're not at the point yet where Durin uh quite has closed off the mine during the third sorry but Elrond asks why all the secrecy and Durin the Fourth um, explains that it's it's dangerous to mine, and you know there are a lot of limitations on them. So we then get this shot of Elrond looking at the Mithril. He looks enraptured, like his eyes are like whoa. But even though he's enraptured, he goes to hand it back to Durin, yeah. and Durin says, "Keep it as a token of our friendship." And it was at this point that I'm like, my heart is full and my heart is breaking because we all know at some point. We all know we're going to feel so much pain, and I, I kept thinking all season. I was like, "It's going to. Ha- when's it going to happen? When is Elrond going to break this trust? When? Is- and it doesn't happen, and it hasn't happened, but it's going to happen one day, pal."
1: Yeah, I know, I know. He gives it back th- this time, and he says, almost seems lit from within, uh, which where we get the name for for the hour.
0: Yeah, that actually, I hadn't really connected how. Elrond looks upon it and then the the meaning of the name. So the scene ends with the cave-in and Durin running in to save the the workers who are down there in the mine. I think there are four down there or something. And then we leave khazad and head back to (coughs) Numenor, where we have another little, very brief scene quickly, uh, where we have a run-in between
1: Aearian and Temen. And you know what? It's kind of cute. Yeah, I what I wrote down is that oh Kevin is friendly, he's funny, like he's flirty, I like that. Again, then they're, they're never
0: gonna be my priority certainly when watching season one. But for whatever reason I like Kevin more on this rewatch. I don't I don't know why. Yeah. I feel like maybe I've got a bit more patience for him this time around because the first time I'm just like, oh, just get to the characters I care about.
1: I think those characters that were kind of they uh, they they uh, they are present in the background. They are not really that important to the to the main plot. We want to overlook them on first watch and we want to get like, get to the to the best stuff, to the juicy bits. <laughs> and then Kemen is not that. Uh, I think that's what happened. But but that was a funny scene. He, he
0: wins her over and they they're gonna have dinner right now let's move on to what is most important to everybody which is that we are back in the cells and galadriel is I my, my note here you'll, you'll like this galadriel is pacing hal is watching fondly <laughs> <laughs> can you see my notes can oh wow you see my highlights? <laughs> okay. oh good lord um so he really is watching her fondly. There's just this little yeah. smart, like exactly what I said before there. He, he finds her so charming and she is not stopping. And, and he gets up and, you know, expresses, he admires how she charges into every obstacle, the galloping, like a horse, blah, blah, blah. And essentially starts giving her advice on diplomacy and a little detail. I, I think I'll hand, uh, I might hand over to you for this scene. Cause I've kept my notes quite brief and then I can come in, but, a little detail right at the start is how I think she says something like, "And I su- like, I suppose you know," like kind of sarcastically. But she accepts his his advice. She's listening. She's ready oh, to yeah. hear what he has to say. You know, she already trusts him.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, I thought about it too, and also what uh, what I wrote down is that she already trusts him, and and I think I think she's actually learning a lot from him. Oh yeah. Like, not just this one piece of advice. It's, like, in general, how to handle conflict and use diplomacy to resolve it. I, I think it's going to come up later in, in, in further seasons uh, that, that Galadriel will improve yes. <laughs> her uh, standing at court.
0: Just for anyone, in case there's a slightly awkward cut there, we got slightly interrupted. So um, we're, neither of us can quite remember where Paulina got to in her fort. So she might have... She might have cut off a bit abruptly. Something that uh, that stood out to me here before I get into a, a few more quotes, because I was, I was watching this scene and thinking about how, basically, I had a conversation with a friend the other day who loves Tolkien, didn't love season one, like appreciated some things about it. But one thing they really struggled with was that in the text, Galadriel never, is never deceived by Sauron. And in the show, she is deceived by Sauron.
1: That is something that a lot of fans are stuck on.
0: Yeah. Now, to anybody, just to give my the reason it's okay with me is because I think it makes for TV, I think it makes a ton of sense. They've they've taken a step back. I think we will see that in season two. We will see Sauron as Anatar, we will see Anatar deceive other elves and Galadriel will be the one that is not deceived at that point that that can can see through Anatar and and is suspicious of him. So I think we will see what you are wanting to see in season 2. I think the show wanted to make Sauron and Galadriel have this connection and they could not do that if she was suspicious of him from the start. Yeah. And personally, I love the idea of The reason she becomes that person that cannot be be deceived is because she was deceived this one time. And so I watch this scene and I think to myself, you know, I'm thinking about how okay she is with him beating people up. I think about how okay she was with him leaving his companions in the Sundering Sea. I look at the next little little bit of dialogue when he's giving her this advice. So identify what your opponent most fears. And she's the one that says and exploit it yeah. right and then he's like no so we'll, we'll talk about this dialogue m- in more detail in a second but it just kind of struck me that galadriel can see bad things happen she can see naughty things happen she can do those things herself she can be violent herself her concept of evil is monstrous and she does not look at sauron and see him uh, at halbrand sorry and see something evil because in her experience, evil is orcs, evil is Morgoth, evil is obvious. And at this point in her journey, she has not encountered deceit. She has not encountered something that is presented as the beautiful servant in this way. And I actually I actually really love that. She's inexperienced. Evil to her is two-dimensional. It's not three-dimensional mm. like Halbrand. And so it's very easy for her to be won over by him and deceived by him in this way that that's just something that kind of jumped out to me watching it again
1: oh yeah yeah i i agree so (laughs) now i just think that maybe the things that people point to when they speak of like some flaws that they find in season one are actually the things that i enjoy the most yes 100 percent yeah yeah I think it's something that like it's maybe not supposed to but like it's got to polarize uh, the viewership and then we will like be on opposite sides with some things and some people will just not accept them and and other people like us will just we'll love it. Yeah, we'll we we'll just love it and jump, uh, jump at this opportunity to just kind of explore something different in a way that that hasn't been done before. What I wrote down uh, like about this whole first part of of their jailed t- <laughs> jail time scene is that like their like uh, that that bit of advice that he's giving her is something that will like I said before uh, will come up in later seasons I'm sure because that time together that they are spending now and their like shared thoughts and opinions and like advice. Oh, Is just shaping them in, in a way that will, I think, be something that will become a part of Galadriel in the future.
0: I completely agree. And I also think what she, like, I've talked about this before with her jumping off the boat and that being people being upset that that's how Sauron returns. And it's like, no, in the long term, everything she learns from him and the connection she forms with him in this season will be her means for mastering him later on. You know, it looks like a victory for Sauron at this point, but long term, this is bad for Sauron.
1: Yeah, long term, this is this is something that she learns about him, and she will like. We don't know exactly how the show will handle the final battle, or if they even. Do that but we can like I uh, uh, think Galad will, will be a key part to defeating him and and her knowing her at this point and and like learning all these things will will be paramount
0: so I just sort of said it but the, the quote give them a means of mastering it so that you can master them I obviously Already thought he was Sauron when I watched this. Funnily enough, this this wasn't the moment in the scene that I, I don't think I actually picked up on this dialogue the very first time I watched it. So I wasn't doing the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing dot gif at this moment. I'm curious if if you picked up on it on your first watch, did this make give you any
1: pause? Oh, yeah, like, there were bells ringing <laughs> in my head. Uh, but I, like, I, I wouldn't say that I dismissed it, but, there, like, I was like, oh, that's clever. That's very clever. Actually, that's that's a solid piece, a piece of advice that the Galadriel should actually use. Reforged thought is that, like, towering Eugenius.
0: <laughs> is he doing it right now? Is he, in this moment, doing to her what he is telling her she should do to Muriel. Is he mastering Galadriel? I don't
1: think so. No? I We can maybe stick a pin mm-hmm. in, in it and save it for, yeah, save uh, save it for penitence Watch, because I think that's something that should come up. Yeah, what I have written down for this uh, whole scene uh, between them is that there is this, and that is the reason why I think he's being like not very sourny, like not playing her, is because there's this undertone of like him being kind of flirty with her throughout this whole scene, and there's this like he's giving her an advice, but it's not like something okay, let's sit you down and like uh, tell you a bit of uh, a bit of wisdom. He's just you know like being very casual about it. But maybe maybe that's him being the master manipulator. Maybe he's manipulating you, Paulina. Okay, stop it. <laughs> How Brand essentially
0: lists Galadriel's failings. You know, you did this, you did that, you did this. And she's like, oh, mm, shit, yeah, I guess.
1: And yeah, and then he's like, see what happens when you stop galloping and give yourself a moment to think.
0: And you know what I've put in all caps after that quote? Yeah. Episode eight. See what happens when she stops galloping and gives herself a second to think.
1: I just love them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then of course, cease comparing me to a horse, uh, which is is great. Okay, well, I was going to respond to what you just said, but I'm going to save it for this sequence. Farazon comes in and reveals that Galadriel is going to be immediately shipped off under armed escort. She's going to be gone. We get this moment where they le- they let her out and she looks at halbrand and we get that moment little little beat where he smiles at her it's almost like an encouraging yeah go do your yeah, thing yeah go on <laughs> and she takes out the guards as she's taking out the guards this is where i had my leonardo dicaprio pointing dog gift when i watched this episode the first time farazon happens to end up right beside halbrand and halbrand starts advising farazon I wouldn't advise that, he says. Now, this is something I did not pick up on the first time I watched this. I think I was distracted by Galadriel taking out the guards and I was kind of watching her and not really paying attention. Farazon says, I can't let her leave. And Halbrand says, you could, if you knew where she was going. Oh, right, yeah. He betrays her a little bit here, you know. He tells them. And that is why Muriel is waiting for Galadriel in the tower. And I don't know why, like, this is where I feel like I maybe slightly disagree with you in the previous scene, right? I don't know. And I do agree we should come back to it in Penitence Watch. I just think, you know, I don't think he betrays her here in any kind of big dramatic way. It was very much a little clue put in there for us, like, okay, he's, he's playing all sides, playing all cards. But he he does tell them where she's going he does tell Farazon this is where they get that information
1: from yeah and he also gets something out of it so yeah for sticking
0: a pin in that as well yeah we go outside and we get this really sweet this is another very short scene a really sweet interaction between Arian and Isildur here yeah where she's kind of I, I, I love that she tells him about her date and we don't get any of that protective brother bullshit which wouldn't suit Isildur's character anyway but he's just like, oh, who is he? You know, he's really kind of just chill about it and supportive. And yeah. I just found it really
1: cute. That's also one of the reasons why I love Isil- Isildur. He's just so chill. <laughs> he's a soft boy, isn't he? Yeah, and he's so, like, open-hearted and, like, mm-hmm. open in general to, to, to things. Oh, I love him. He's also he's also still quite
0: sad. And she picks up on that very quickly. Um, And he reveals what happened she's shocked, but again, very sweetly, like you can tell she's really horrified because of what happened and and the fact that you know he also gets Valandil and Antimo kicked out. but she does try to switch to being supportive. She's like, well, at least now you can go west. Um, and then we get this great line where it's sort of like, father's never gonna let me go west and then and then he says, plus father won't let me take Beric." <laughs> which is which is the main reason let's <laughs> just be clear about it genuinely think that's beautiful it's like you know i would go but i'm not going about beric so yeah i'm not going about my horse <laughs> so soldiers go running past the elf has escaped we cut to gladriel smashing through a window very purposefully striding up the king's tower your majesty muriel's there how did you know i would come here Galadriel says they obviously don't tell her that it was her her good pal Halbrand. brand we get a very spiky scene between these two women mm. uh, and i love it i love how oh i love it too That they're both just not backing down they're both so strong and forthright they're both kind of desperate to convince the other but not that great at it tar palantir draws muriel back to him and i think the love of a father the affection of a daughter. The kind of tragedy of how weak he is softens them both.
1: Muriel softens
0: because of her father.
1: Galadriel. Yeah, Galadriel. Galadriel looks really stricken and genuinely ashamed. Yes, uh, for the way that she barged in and like disturbed this, you no, know, peace and also this this man laying si- sick in bed. So. Yeah, that was that was really uh, I really like that Galadriel kind of takes a step back uh, for a second there, and then she acknowledges uh, the fact that she okay maybe she was in the wrong here uh, to assume that that the king was like being held captive in the tower.
0: And I don't think don't get me wrong, I don't think uh, Galadriel needed this to to soften in this moment. I think you know Galadriel is headstrong but she's still a good person with a good heart. So I, I think this would have happened anyway. But in terms of how the episode is structured, I don't think it's a surprise that this moment where she stops and thinks and listens and feels comes after Halbrand has advised her to stop galloping constantly.
1: Yeah, and to, to, to think. Yeah, yeah, to, to think and to reflect.
0: Be a bit more of a mediator in these situations. She, she does apologize and she basically says, look, let's just be honest with each other. Let's have some truth between us. So Muriel takes Gladriel in a very exciting moment up the tower to the Palantir, which we are obviously very familiar with, one in particular. In this scene, Muriel gives details about exactly what happened with the rebellion in Numenor against her father, and how he his kind of inclination towards the elves caused all of this trouble and how her kind of becoming regent was dependent on her putting aside her father's loyalties, even if that's not necessarily what she believes or what she wants. She encourages Galadriel to touch the Palantir, and she Galadriel witnesses the same, what am I thinking, vision the, of the future prophecy, I suppose, as Muriel has with the Great Wave. And we essentially get a, a, a back and forth between the two of them, where Muriel is basically trying to say to Galadriel, you know, reveals that the start of the vision is Galadriel's arrival. So Galadriel's arrival is going to trigger something. Basically, Muriel is unsure. Is it Muriel is leaning through fear towards it being if she helps Galadriel, she will cause this problem. And Galadriel is pointing out that's not set in stone. What if it's the other way around? What if you're supposed to help me? And if you don't, that's what causes the wave which is a really really impossible situation for muriel to be put in oh yeah
1: yeah i i I was just going to say that she is like she got this title and this this uh, this crown from his father before his time was up and now she's she's facing this impossible choice that like there is no real like she cannot be sure which choice is the correct one like we we also do not know and i uh, i don't think she she does either if if the vision that the palantir shows is just something that can be relied upon because like we know from lord of the rings that the, those objects were uh, steeped in dark powers and they weren't maybe not like they they could manipulate your uh, perception. Mm-hmm. So so it's not something that that she maybe should rely upon too much. But also, what choice does she does she have? Is she already has seen the vision? Like, what would you do?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's impossible. Um, I've written down a quote here that Galadriel says to Muriel, which has mm. so many layers. Oh my god, I know what it is. To be the only one who sees. This is on rewatch, knowing, like, most obviously, knowing what happens to Muriel in losing her sight is so powerful. It ties to the, the, muriel seeing these visions and it also goes back to galadriel being the one that is just so determined and
1: and knows sauron is out there somewhere
0: and nobody listening to her
1: that she misses him being right in front of her so yeah like yeah exactly what i was gonna say it's like
0: she's right she is the only one that sees in her own people but there's another layer She's not seeing what's directly in front of her. There's so much going on in this line. Then there's also the weight and the emotion of it. There's a real Mm. bond formed between these women here because Mm. of that sense of burden. Muriel has no one to share this burden with before talking to Galadriel about it. Father is, is sick. She can't tell anybody for fear that they will
1: exploit it. Far, Farazan is the worst person that she could actually confide in. Like it's, it really is a great burden and in, in an impossible situation. And there's also this quote that I wrote down that uh, she, Muriel says that faith may bind one heart, but it is a too fine a thread from which to hang a kingdom.
0: I wrote that one down too, yeah.
1: Which is like very doom and gloom, but also so beautifully said. And delivered by by the actress, I I love that, and I also like that the scene between Galadriel and Miel ends with this sort of understanding between them. It's it's not like they're not spiky against each other. They're not having a very heated argument anymore. They understand each other's burden, and they kind of like Galadriel once again. She thought Galloping, and she, she took a step back, and she she actually had like a conversation with another human being, and it worked. Like she gets it now. Like it's 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 really profound that like the connection between them, the that that seed of like a relationship of maybe friendship is just amazing
0: yeah all my own thoughts as well and i think it's very clear just as well from Muriel's perspective that 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 line that you said and i also also wrote it down she's basically saying look if it was just me if it if it was me on my own i would be with you but i am regent for an entire kingdom and i cannot bind all of those other people to you um and that's what gladriel understands yeah We are back in the Southlands. We get one very, very brief um, scene basically where Rowan returns to the tower. Bronwyn asks, Where is Theo? And Rowan lies out of his teeth by saying, Oh, he was right behind me. No, he wasn't. You left him. Yeah, no, he was. Yeah. The next sequence is what I have called Theo's video game escape. It really well shot scene, though I'm not going to go into every single detail, but it's like one of those over the shoulder, one tracked sequences. It's very tense. You know, he's going to get caught at some point and you keep waiting for it to happen and waiting for it to happen. And then Theo does get caught and he's about to get stabbed and in, instead we get a proper like hero music moment yeah. when erondir oh, is revealed and his the beats of him and bronwyn's theme play and it's so glorious and then that little moment this is this is the beginning of the true father son relationship where fia looks up at him erondir helps him up and then we get this incredible sequence running through the trees a horde of orcs chasing them because they they mm-hmm. now know Theo has the hilt they want that hilt yeah. right? we get that moment where in slow motion Arondir pushes Theo over to save him from the arrow catches the arrow fires it back incredible so hot. So oh hard. my god it was glorious absolutely glorious and then the sequence which had me screaming the first time I watched this I was so convinced when because it's all slow-mo The music is really powerful, really sad. And you see Theo's eyes widen. And then you see Bronwyn running in. I was so sure. Not for the last time this season. I was so sure she was dead. I was convinced one of those arrows was going to hit her. Same. (laughs) Such a relief that that does not happen. So then, yeah, uh, they, they break out of the trees and you're thinking, oh, shit, what's, you know, that's still a horde of orcs chasing you. But the timing is very good. The sun comes out, they, they stop out of range, the orcs won't come beyond the tree line. And as Bronwyn readies her sickle, which I love, I love that that's like her weapon of choice, we get the transition with the music into Deesa's plea with that sun in the background, with the orcs still shooting a few arrows, really stunning, stunning scene.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I have nothing really much to add because that was, that was all just perfect. The, and just the way that you described it, I really loved seeing Arondir Deer coming uh, to, like he obviously came back to the village to warn them, to, 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 to like see where Bronwyn was. Like that, that, that was obvious for me. And I really loved that confirmation that his first steps were actually to check on the village mm-hmm. and Bronwyn, so, so we, we get that, we get the fatherly sun scene between them and that kind of beginnings of a friendship between them, which wasn't a given from the, um, from the side. And also, okay, so that scene when they run from the, from the orcs and then they want to get to the clearing so, so, so the sun can protect them, I loved that whole entire scene with the slow motion of swords and when they when Aaron Deer catches the arrow and when, when Bronwyn uh, appears I screamed as well I was like so convinced that something would happen then they get to the clearing and it's such a beautiful moment I just I just absolutely I think I teared up even. It's really powerful. It's a really beautiful scene. It was scene. so, so beautiful and powerful. Like the whole scenery, the sun rays just kind of peeking through the clouds and the, the dawn just kind of like beginning. I loved it. And the music and the, the transition between uh, like the, the kind of heavy, grand uh, instrumental music in, in the background to Disaspley, uh, to to the rocks. Whoever whoever came, came up with that. Just give give them a race. Brilliant editing, yeah.
0: yeah. We, We don't know, the first time we're watching it, we don't know that it's Disa singing, right? And so then we then go to all of these shots of the mountains, gorgeous shots of what I assume are New Zealand's mountains, before we come back into the mountain, and that's when we get it confirmed with this, again, incredible transition, Disa is doing her resonating with the rocks we see that elrond is witnessing this and it really stood out to me watching this again how unique an experience and how unique an elf elrond is that he's there that he's trusted to be there that he's welcomed there to see this culture
1: yeah he actually witnesses the culture of like uh, like I don't think it's a privilege that that many other elves could could actually say that they were a part of in a way. So yeah, it, it was amazing, and also the plea to the rocks to the gods. I think it was a plea to the gods to to release the miners from. Did you,
0: because I assumed the first time I watched it, I thought it was a funeral. I didn't, I thought they were all dead. And it was, it was a funeral. And I didn't pick up on, I, I think Disa does say it, but I didn't pick up on it until Durin comes back in and says they've all been pulled out alive. So I just thought they'd all died. And this was a funeral service.
1: Yeah, me me too, actually. I love that. And
0: I think it's one of those things, it's a bit like any kind of religion, right? Like you could be a, a cynic and say, well, you singing to the rocks isn't going to make a difference. You find them or you don't. Or you can be somebody that has faith and you sing to the rocks and that's why you find them right you can go you can go either way after the the ceremony deesa is apologizing to elrond for for deceiving him because you know she she's having this moment of like durin could have been in there if he wasn't talking to you he would have been in there he could be dead elrond obviously is not holding anything against her and then and then we have durin come back in
1: before we get into the durin stuff anything to say regarding elrond and deesa's moment I, I just appreciated the the Aaron's presence there and and he talked to Lisa and I thought it was a nice uh, kind of step back from the kind of heated argument that they had. Like
0: Durin comes in and we get the good news first. The the four dwarves have all been pulled out alive, but he very quickly turns to anger because of this incident. Durin the third is closing the mithril mine, and Durin the fourth is furious. Disa tries to say like give him time he'll calm down but Durin is like just so angry really really saying stuff out of anger regarding his father. Elrond is kind of just observing and then he steps in and I I would have written down the entire speech but it would have taken too long. Um he starts talking about, you know, his father essentially being a star in the sky and looking up at him and wondering would he be proud would he be disappointed? yada 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 and then I wrote down I would only be too happy to hear any judgment so long as it granted me the opportunity to have but one more conversation with my father. Do not waste what time you have left with yours.
1: That was, that was everything. That was Erod being, being amazing and being like also a bit heartbroken and just being an amazing friend, missing his father giving them a piece of wisdom really everything the whole package and also it's one of this is one of those quotes where you know
0: when you watch some people don't understand watching fantasy shows the best kind of fantasy shows are the ones that are entirely relatable to like real life as well because you are still able to relate to what is happening but you're still getting like that escapism and that wonder and this kind of attitude of you know somebody not being around anymore and that desire to speak to them one more time. I mean, God, every single person can relate to that.
1: Yeah, and basically just proves that they are still human, even if they're like, he's an elf, but you you know what I mean. So like that, that sort of um, facet to his personality and also to, to, to like him being a, a being with with feelings and emotions and problems as well then they very
0: kindly after all of that emotion the writers are like everyone needs a little bit of um a good feeling now so we switch into I didn't again this is another one of those scenes it's really good I don't have any notes on it other than to say we we, we get the we get the banter with regarding how Duran and Elrond first met it's lovely <laughs> it's really warm Wayne's um performance on a couple of lines here like the way he talks is so good you can really feel his no i think i think at one point he goes nah like something like that and it's like <laughs> yeah. really fantastic and then we cut to Loki, one of my favorite dynamics from this show like during going to see his dad just to say before we get into this scene during the third is not a character that anyone is really going to talk about that much he's so good he's such a good character I love it. He's he's not a big part of the show. He kind of reminds me of Gilgalad in that way, but maybe even even more of a surprise to me. Duran goes Duran Duron Durin goes, Durin, Durin, Durin goes <laughs> to see his dad. Now, did you think duran the third was dead? Because I did. <laughs> I remember watching it with my mum, because was talking so to awkward. him. He was so still, and there was that long shot of Durin the Fourth just talking, talking, talking. Yeah. Me and my mum were like, oh my god, he's dead. He's dead. And because of what Elrond had just said, like, yeah. I was convinced he was dead.
1: He's just so old that he's becoming one with the stone in, in his throat. I don't know. But like, yeah, I, I did think that he was dead. He, Durin the
0: third finally gets up and, and relates to the audience that doesn't know the, the concept of every king of the dwarves being called Durin because they each speak with the voice of the previous king. You need not wait for that day to hear my voice as in the day I die. Forever am I with you, my son, even in anger, sometimes in anger, most of all, there is nothing to forgive.
1: <laughs> oh I I have this same quote written oh, down so and I have it I'm, I have it in like double highlights <laughs> because it's it's just so beautiful. And most of all the second part of it, even in anger, in anger or in anger most of all just just perfect that's perfect that's that's like true parental love and also true just feeling oh i love this it's
0: it's perfect coming after what elrond said because you can almost you can imagine Elron's father saying the same thing to him you know like if he could from his star up in the sky it's what everybody wants to hear it also hurts me but gives me hope after episode seven because in episode seven, this relationship breaks. But Durin III says here, even in anger, sometimes in anger most of all. So he's still with him, pal. He's still
1: with him in episode seven. He still loves him. That's still his son. But uh, it was heartbreaking. Like on rewatch, most of all, because you, you just know what happens next and um, between them. This really wonderful scene.
0: Ends with the two of them, you know, they're clearly feeling their bond and uh, Durin the third kind of puts it to Durin the fourth. You know, what's what's your instinct telling you? And even though Durin and Elrond love each other, Durin knows there's something else going on to the point that poor Elrond doesn't know that there's something else going on. Bless him. But Durin does. They both agree. uh, Elrond has invited Durin to Linden and Durin is going to go. So we fly across for our last stint to the Southlands and we get this, my note: I've got one note on this scene. We get Arondir essentially giving Bronwyn the message from Adar, either, either you join Adar or he's going to destroy you. My note on this scene, Bronwyn wants him so bad. When she walks over, her face, the, the love and adoration, and I mean, you can't blame her after what he just did yeah. He saved her son. He went, uh, you know, he did not need to do that. He saved her son. He brought her son home. Very, very action hero style. She did not want him to give her that news. She wanted something else from him as she approached him in this scene, let me tell you. Oh yeah. And that's all I have to say about it.
1: <laughs> uh what I what I just wrote down is that like they're basically given the same ultimate that Morgoth presented to, to the Southlanders ages ago, right? So so it's just history repeating itself.
0: We then cut to Theo and Waldreg. And this is basically Waldreg's, like, coming out as
1: a villain moment. Yeah. Like, the the final confirmation, because we already got some, you know, tingles from, from his uh, speech earlier this episode. He reveals that he knows Theo has the hilt
0: and he reveals that he to some degree knows he doesn't know exactly what the hilt is because i think if he did he would have used it already but he knows it's a power
1: he he also says and that is something that i highlighted is uh, that a beautiful servant
0: in the way he says it beautiful servant he really draws out that beautiful um and he hasn't even seen halbrand yet so yeah we get the we get the sauron theme here as well we do get one little detail from Waldergo where he clearly thinks. I think the reason he's kicking his his evilness up a gear is because of seeing the star, which we obviously saw in episode one. We know is the Stranger. We know is not Sauron, but he clearly thinks it's a sign.
1: Yeah, yeah. That the 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 comment was actually the sign. Uh, the sign of of Sauron coming back. I really liked that exchange and and Baldrick like playing it up and like revealing his cards like I I thought it was it was like a great uh also from an acting point of view I also like wrote down a note that like Theo looks alarmed <laughs>
0: like, yeah well that was a question I was going to put to you next as kind of the the end of this scene at this point I was still Convinced that Theo was going to make a terrible mistake, and maybe not intentionally, but at this point, if you had asked me, I would have said he's going to go with Waldreg.
1: Oh yeah, on first watch, and I think I even tweeted it. Yeah, this little shit is
0: obviously going to go with. Yeah, Waldrick.
1: he's obviously making that mistake. He's obviously like, uh, this is this is just a downhill battle for him. Uh, but then, then he does, which I'm so glad for. I think. Aphia uh, already feels that connection to that hilt mm-hmm. like to like this just maybe like maybe it doesn't have him in like in his possession like it's not like he's wholly corrupted by it but but I think there's just something going on there and like I I keep thinking back to what we established that we see for for see for uh for fear that he will be one of the nazguls I think and maybe this is his first meeting with that sort of dark power
0: yeah I'm still not I I don't know where I land on that I I feel like it's possible and then a part of me thinks it's not is it just the general promise of power because it's a a blade that's clearly magical Mm. I don't I don't know but I think it's yeah we'll, we'll talk about it next week I'm I'm looking forward to the next couple of episodes for Theo I think I think this is, the, this is the final stage of bad Theo and we're starting to drift into good Theo. So we move away from Waldreg being bad to Adar. Very, very brief scene here where he basically gets told they've got the hilt in Osteriff and we're we're it ends on an ominous note. We know Adar wants that hilt. We don't know what it's for. We know it's a power. Mm-hmm. Shall we talk about this final sequence, which I'm going to break it up into three sections, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. So section one, we have Galadriel being brought out to be sent away on her on her ship. Guard of Honor. Ellen Deal is with her. He says goodbye to her in Elvish, which I love. Uh, Muriel and Farazon watching. They put her on the boat to take her across to her ship. Muriel and Farazon walk away. Should we we'll talk about the music at the end, yeah? Mm-hmm. Cause because there's so much to say about the music for oh, this yeah. Muriel, you can tell she's kind of reluctant, but also glad to just have it be done. They're walking away through the streets. And then we see the first petal. And we know that those petals are important and they made that clear in that very first scene. She turns, the petals are falling. We get that very important shot between her and Ellen Deal. They really, really get it. They're both like, oh shit. And then we also do get a shot of Farazon and I think he's harder to read. And that's where I'm ending part one of this recap.
1: I loved, absolutely adored that Deal said... Um go in peace in quenya to galadriel that 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 really showed that that there is a kinship between them and it's it it was really really kind of it felt like a final farewell between them do you want to start
0: so the second part of this scene is what i will call the pronouncement and this is where the music does start to kind of swell and rise to this crescendo which ultimately, along with Muriel speaking, you know, she's giving this this speech back in the kind of courtroom area and it builds and builds and builds and we then see this hooded figure and right as the theme builds back to Galadriel's theme, Galadriel walks in and Muriel announces that she is herself going to accompany Galadriel back to, to Middle-earth. Those petals falling were the sign that she needed and even Farazon is going along with it. And why that's important for Muriel is because it means that she's not going to have to fight the people to make this happen because Farazon is on side. Again, nothing from Farazon that shows any kind of disagreement, any hesitation. He's, he's helping.
1: Yeah, he seems to be in Muriel's co- corner, at least for now. <laughs> we get lots
0: of little short shots here, including Halbrand. Released, free, overlooking yeah. things, and uh Galadriel and Muriel—they they are officially a team. So that's that's part two of this scene. Shall I just go straight into part three? Mm-hmm. Okay. Part three, and at this point, the music is just popping off. Proper Numenor theme. Everything's very epic. It's incredible. Ellen Deal is pre- preparing the expedi- expeditionary force to Middle Earth, looking for for volunteers. Valendil, immediately having been kicked off the Sea Guard, he he wants to prove himself. He's in. He nudges Ontemo. Ontemo, poor Ontemo, is not so keen. He's in. Isildur lurking in the background, sees his friends going for it. And for so many reasons, partly to try and get back in with his friends, but partly because this sounds like some big epic adventure and maybe this is what he needs. He's in. We get an Elendil reaction shot to Isildur putting himself forwards. We get an Arian reaction shot to Isildur putting himself forwards. Then the episode ends with a shot of Galadriel and Muriel looking at each other. Boom. Just an incredible sequence. The The soundtrack name, just for anyone that is unaware, is White Leaves. And you can listen to the entire thing. Because it's it's really about, like, the music makes this scene so special, right?
1: yeah yeah definitely like like at the end of the day galadriel gets what what she wanted which is an army uh to to middle but like uh, like we know that that she got her uh, uh got what she came for but really it's the music that that does the job here and makes makes it makes it so special the white petals falling to the ground the 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 like the pronouncement, the, the 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 fact that Isildur signs uh signs uh, on for this expedition, not knowing really what what it has in store for him. Obviously, there's so much. There are so many layers to it, and so much emotion, and so much to uncover, so much to unfold in in later even seasons. So.
0: I think that was something that really struck me watching this the first time is a bit like seeing Numenor for the first time seeing Numenor the Numenoreans return to Middle-earth like oh my god this is the this is you know it's fiction but it's legend right and we're actually getting to see it happen
1: yeah and it's I think it's one of the scenes that like at least for me it's kind of iconic now
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: with with the white petals like the whole sequence with the music it's it's so so iconic and also it's kind of it's fitting for me that it is like mid uh, midway through the season like it's something like, like it's like a gate to something else like they're going back to mid-earth now uh, after being in Numenor
0: so quick thoughts on the episode um before we we move on i ranked this in fourth place i kind of a bit like adar although slightly different this episode for me was interesting on rewatch loved it it ends incredibly strongly but i don't it didn't feel as packed to bursting with awesome moments as episode three i think it was a softer quieter episode in a lot of ways I think it will go down in my ranking. I think, I think episode five at least is, is definitely going above it.
1: Interesting. Okay. Because I actually feel the opposite. (laughs) I, I think it will go up in my ranking. I like, At this moment, I really cannot remember what what my ranking of it was initially, but it was a very clever episode. I, I thought it really propelled the plot forward. There was a lot of like, talk like politics but there was also some cool action with Theo with with Aaron Deer obviously the last sequence ended the episode really strongly and kind of introduces us to the second half of the season which I thought was really well done and there were also some emotional and tender moments some funny bits as well so it it really was a whole package I I don't think i Thought of it this strongly when I first watched it, uh, it kind of fell in the middle for me. And now uh, I think it will go up. Um, but yeah, shall we move on to
0: Penitence Watch? Now, I'm just going to give uh, our listeners a slight insight. Uh, we just had to take a quick break because it's the time of year where it gets dark and I have to walk my dog. Uh, so, luckily for me, walking banjo who you will sometimes hear on this podcast in the distance, allowed me to really sit and think about my feelings on Penitence Watch. And particularly that moment that we talked about earlier that we put a pin in where Halbrand does technically betray Galadriel to Farazon. Betray is a very strong word. It was, it's a very minor thing, but he but he does. So yeah, do you, do you want to kind of get into your feelings on Penitence Watch, and I and I see where I'm floating, or shall I get into mine?
1: Uh, let me maybe start. I stand by what I said mm-hmm. that he he's not being sourny in in this episode, not not just yet. I do recognize and I do see the fact that he tells Farazan where. Galadriel is going so he does betray her although it is not a huge betrayal like i would even consider not using that word like he 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 has this piece of information and he shares it mm-hmm. i i didn't think of it as something very grand and very okay this is a point of no return so so i stand by it as as for manipulation and whether he Whether he's playing her, telling her basically that he may as well be doing that because like learn how how did it go? Like the mastering, give them a means of mastering it so you can master them. Yeah, exactly. I think what is happening here is something that happened as well in episode two and episode three is that he's gathering information and he's saving it for later it doesn't mean that he he is actively manipulating her into giving her uh, giving uh, giving him anything that she doesn't want to share with him i don't think there's this element of him being deceptive uh, towards her in in that scene
0: i think i agree with you on one thing and i and i'm slightly different on another i i agree i don't think he is manipulating her yet um, he's definitely manipulating Farazon I I do think he is he is sharing this information with her and letting her do with it as she will. I do think I am going to keep using the word betrayal only because I think not to the extent that it would break their relationship, but I I do think if Galadriel knew he had done that, I think she would be ta- a bit taken aback. I, I I think she does see him as as somewhat being on her team. I think he would turn around and say to her, look, so, this is what I did for on my walk. I thought, okay, but what's his intention in doing that? What is he getting out of telling Farazon? And I think ultimately what Halbrand wants is to not leave Numenor. He doesn't want Galadriel to succeed in what she's doing because that mm-hmm. includes him going back.
1: But he's also not doing anything outright that would prevent her from, like, uh achieving her 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 ends. Like she he's he's only like protecting his own agenda here. Perhaps.
0: But I, I think there is an element that he understands that she thinks he's the king to to get Muriel back to the to Middle earth. Him being king is a big part of that. I think he is conscious of that and he is trying to stop that from happening. He doesn't know what's gonna happen, but I could imagine Sauron being perceptive enough to pick up on the fact that Muriel is perhaps not so unsympathetic to Galadriel's cause. Mm-hmm. And I could imagine him thinking, I don't want Galadriel and Muriel to become best friends and have a conversation because Galadriel could convince Muriel and, you know, this could happen. So if I stop them from having that conversation by telling Farazon what Galadriel is doing, maybe I'm more likely to get what I want, which is to not go back. I don't I don't know about that the thing that I definitely think is that in having a conversation with Barazon, he negotiates getting a guild badge and getting out of his cell and that's what he really wants in the immediate moment so that's what he ultimately gets out of it I don't know I don't I I think I think it's what we've said before with with Sauron in that he takes what information he has and uses what information he can
1: yeah I i I disagree on the uh, on on the Galadriel and Muriel front because I don't think I, I think he's perceptive enough to know what it can mean for him in the future when they do reach an agreement. I don't know like i I don't think he he wants her like uh, it would be better for him if they didn't have that talk right but it's not something that that he actively is opposed to.
0: I I agree. I don't I don't think it's active opposition. Like like I say, I think ultimately what he's doing is getting himself some leverage with Farazon because he knows that Farazon can get him what he wants, which is which is the forge. But I think there's I think he's aware of everything and conscious of various things and and pulling on various strings. Just to say, we haven't actually talked about penitence um, at all. We just talked about that. (laughs) I I would say this episode is a continuation of what we said about the last episode, Mm. which is that by Sauron's standards, he's penitent Mm -hmm. in that he still doesn't want anything to do with anything. He just wants to be at the forge. But like last time where he was willing to steal to make it happen. Mm this time he's willing to deceive he's willing to lie a little bit he's he's willing to yeah. be tucking on those strings in a way that is, comes very naturally to him almost second nature to to get what he wants so it's still that kind of his penitence but not true penitence
1: yeah he he just continues to to kind of choose to take a shortcut to achieve his goal and like i think he's very much aware of how Everything that has been happening around Galadriel and what Galadriel wants uh, is kind of a temptation to him of sorts that I think will really touch on in episode five. Yes. But I think he's already aware of this temptation not not really breaking surface with him just yet but it is definitely there and he's aware and,
0: and perhaps we are in perhaps in that moment where he he can't quite help himself from whispering in Farazon's ear perhaps that is already something that you know galadriel is is kind of awakening in him like his his true self kind of thing i don't know favorite scene do you want to go first or, or should i go first i
1: have a bit of a dilemma this week you you should go first because i just went first so okay
0: so my dilemma this week is that I have a scene, I have two scenes, and there are lots of scenes that I love. I love Durin and Elrond conversation about mm-hmm. fathers. I then love Durin and Durin. I really, really love that scene between Durin and Durin. I obviously love the cell stuff with Halbrand and Galadriel. I love the scene with Muriel and Galadriel as well, the Palantir and everything with that. There are two scenes and I can't decide which one I want to be favourite scene and which one I want to be favourite musical moment. I think I'm making my choice. I'll explain when I get to the musical moment. And that might be a spoiler because you might be surprised by my choice here. When I get to musical moment, I'll, I'll tell you why I've gone for that. So my favourite scene is Aaron Deer saving Theo, the escape through the woods and then coming out on the other side with the sun breaking through. I I loved it the first time I watched it. It's still, I thought maybe I I would feel less about it because the first time I watched it, I had that drama of genuinely thinking Bronwyn was about to die. And I was like, Oh my God. Um, So I thought maybe it would, it would lessen slightly without that. But actually, if anything, I just love it even more seeing the three of them really come together for the first time. That trio is a dynamic that I love from this season. Mm -hmm. Rondir getting to be a big old hero. Theo, I feel like it's almost like it's the transition moment that, that moment Arondir pushes Theo over is the moment we leave bad Theo behind and we get good Theo. <laughs> and then obviously the, the, the music in the scene as well really makes it. So that's my favourite scene, I think. Is that a surprise?
1: Not really. Mm-hmm. Although I, I, I thought you would use it for favourite musical uh-huh. moment. So my favourite scene uh, is the cell scene. <laughs> Basic bitch, everybody. Basic bitch. Uh, well... First of all, it propels the plot forward. Like the like the 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 piece of advice that he gives her is is something that really gets everything going. Mm-hmm. So like not to say that Galadriel wouldn't have thought of a way to achieve her end, but but Halbrand definitely helps her mm-hmm. uh, this way. And I also love, and I think I Ma- mentioned it uh, already, that there's this playful undertone mm-hmm. to the scene and then our question of, of whether he is uh, he is manipulating her or not like it's still kind of in the air and I think taking all of the all of it into account it's just something that I I really love the multi-layered uh, nature of the scene and how playful it comes across and I just yeah 100% loved it. I I love it. It's definitely up there. And the, the camera work, also acting, Charlie was phenomenal as always. Yeah, so that, was my favorite one but but I like I had a lot of different ideas and different contenders so it wasn't an easy choice
0: I would say this episode I think what struck me about the scenes in this episode I didn't have as many kind of one big scene that was definitely my favorite there were lots of really good scenes if that makes sense um Mm -hmm. favorite quote you can go first this time
1: uh, okay, so that's uh, for me. That's the one uh, that comes up uh, be- uh, in conversation between during the fourth and during uh, no, sorry, during the third and during the fourth. <laughs> uh, so that that line that ends in even in anger or sometimes in anger most of all. That just yeah <laughs> swept me off my feet really made me emotional i really teared up even on rewatch which is something that doesn't necessarily happen sometimes the the effect that a certain scene has on you on first watch is just something that that sticks and then you just don't get as affected it didn't happen this this time i really loved it and yeah although it was a really hard choice uh, uh, that's what I was going
0: to say. I, I really struggled, so I ended up going for something that's a bit of a swerve because there was that one, which I absolutely adore. I adore Elrond um, to Durin talking about the, you know, I'd give it all to just have one more word with my father. I loved Muriel to Galadriel, Faith May Bind One Heart. Um, I, lo- I I shout out to Halbrand, Master mastering you know give them the means of mastering it um more for plot related reasons than emotion but like you know still a really good line ultimately i went for something that is very personal to me and very layered and just i'll get to this when we get to episode seven muriel losing her sight anybody that knows me i'm very very connected to i have uh i'm, I'm blind in one eye actually and have had very many issues with my my sight of my life and i love seeing any character that represents that So the line, uh, I know what it is to be the only one who sees, just especially on a rewatch, knowing what happens, gets to me. I think that's going to be a line that I come back to in the future, which which is just going to have so much emotional resonance on so many levels. So it doesn't, it's not one of the big ones, but I'm going to go for that as my favourite quote, I think. So your turn to go first on favourite musical moment.
1: Okay, so you stole my thunder (laughs) a bit because you, uh, yeah. My fifth musical moment is Aaron saving fear and them running through the woods, meeting Bronwyn, and then making it to the clearing. That's, yeah, I, I think the way that I talked about it earlier, <laughs> I don't give it away. It's my my number one. My number two, if I can just mention it, it was Galadriel being rowed to the ship uh, as, as she kind of leaves Numenor
0: so my my conflict with that scene that I was like yeah favorite musical moment um my favorite musical moment is the entire end sequence <laughs> but, and I am slightly cheating because I was like it can't be my favorite scene because it's lots of different scenes uh-huh. but what what connects it the whole way through without pause is this one incredible track White Leaves mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. incorporates multiple themes it rises and it falls and it lends so much power to that end sequence. So I think because it's not really one single scene, that's why I've gone for it as my favorite musical moment. It's such like an empowering ending made by the music. So that's my favorite musical moment, even though technically it's lots of moments and an entire soundtrack theme.
1: It really gives you chills yeah. if you watch it. Like even on rewatch, mm-hmm. it's it's just perfect. So
0: it's one of those tracks you can, I mean, I can do this with every track on the soundtrack, but that one in particular, you listen to it and you you can feel every moment, mm. you know. You know when Isildur is volunteering himself. You know when Galadriel is walking in. You you can feel every moment of it. So finally, MVP, and it, I guess it's my turn to go first. Yeah, I don't think I necessarily had any big expectation going into this episode about who it would be. I was Mm -hmm. probably thinking, I I was thinking Elrond or Durin. The dwarves were big in my mind going in. Mm -hmm. But I am pleasantly surprised to say my MVP of this episode is the Queen of Queens, Muriel. (laughs) And I was pleasantly surprised by it. I, I really, I love her and I love her later in the season. But she is strong across this entire episode. She has a lot to do. We see a lot of sides of her. And I feel like, that ending from her in particular, that moment where she sees the petals and she makes the call because she is so afraid of making this decision of making this choice of essentially banking the entirety of Numenor on on fate on prophecy, but she she does have the courage to do it, and she does you know face her fear, and then that that ending with Galadriel and Muriel having that team up she's powerful in this episode and She's she's funny early on in how she gives Ellen Deal that look, um, how she throws Galadriel in the cells. She's vulnerable and she's strong and she's everything. So it is mm-hmm. it's my queen, Muriel, for me.
1: Uh, yeah, I had a dilemma. Uh, I thought it would be Elrond for some reason. Like, uh, thinking back to my first watch, I was kind of, like, anticipating it to be Elrond, Elrond uh, again. But it's Muriel. <gasps> Yay! Oh, I'm so pleased. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything that you just listed, like every facet to her persona as as a queen, as a um, as a daughter, mm-hmm. as someone that has to basically make this uh, make this impossible choice to to like go on a limb. Or or just uh, heed the advice of the vision that could be interpreted like either way. Mm-hmm. It's it's all such a tangle, and she manages to to be wise in it all. And I really I was struck really by by how uh, how well acted it was, how strong and how how really vulnerable, but also. Just, just so inspiring she was. Mm So Muriel, like one hundred percent. I, my second choice was Halbrand, the puppet master kind of vibe, and and how he really made it all come to be in a way with Galadriel. But Muriel takes the torch here. She was
0: ultimately, I went into the episode not thinking of her at all. Having watched the episode, she was the obvious choice. The only outside choice for me as as a real swerve, but just because of impact from such a small amount of screen time, was during the third. I really
1: can't stress enough how great <laughs> i think during the third is like he he had lit one line that yeah. ended up being my favorite quote of the yeah. episode so like i really didn't think much of him at all yeah <laughs> and he really seemed dead in that pro <laughs> for did. a second but i mean yeah like maybe second mvp of this yeah yeah Who knows? Who
0: knows? <laughs> All right. So that's everything. Um, We thought this would be a shorter episode. It is not. It is longer. So hopefully we don't have much to say at the end here. Uh,
1: Yeah, I think we we are all talked out. So
0: we are halfway through the season. Can you believe it? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, only four more episodes. My goodness. I'm very excited to get to episode five.
1: But also very action, action packed episodes.
0: Yeah, there's gonna be, that's going to be a three-hour episode or something. We might have to split that one in half or something, part, part one and part two. All right, then, guys, our usual message um, links to all of our social media are in the show notes. Please, 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 um, if you can, stop for a second to give us a rating and review on whichever uh, medium you are listening to us on. That would really mean a tonne. Um it's the one thing that we're we're slightly lacking. We just we just want those reviews. We're we're really happy with um all of the all of the messages that we're getting in. How can we how can we beg you? I don't know. You can ask anything of us if we if we do the, if we do the reviews.
1: Yeah, write it, please.
0: <laughs> you, all you have to put is great. <laughs> and that will be fine. But yeah, I think that's everything. We're looking forward to the next one. We hope that you are too. A smooth transition into what is our catchphrase. Think like a half
1: guys. And live good. <laughs>